Police State. Could it happen here? By Jules Archer. Chapter 1. Democracies and Police States. During the administration of Richard M. Nixon, 1969-1974, as this American president persisted in continuing an unpopular war in Vietnam, protesters staged huge anti-war demonstrations. Calling them communist-inspired, the president tried to ensure himself a second term in the White House by using the powers of his office to sabotage his political opponents. In 1974, the American people became aware that in pursuit of his objectives, the president and his aides had committed a number of crimes in violation of the Constitution. They had authorized burglary. They had invaded citizens' privacy by ordering wiretapping and eavesdropping devices, bugs, planted in phones and walls, spying even on members in Congress. They had intercepted, opened, and read private mail. They had illegally investigated and kept under surveillance citizens opposed to Nixon's policies. They had used police agents to spy on and disrupt dissenting organizations. Government spies planted inside such groups had urged members to commit violent acts to give the president an excuse to discredit all dissenters as terrorists out to destroy the nation. When the press began to uncover and expose these and other unsavory administration secrets, Nixon and his aides urged everyone who could implicate the president to lie at court trials and, con and congressional hearings. They destroyed evidence, bribed arrested criminals to keep silent, and either ordered government agencies to cover up their crimes or obstructed investigations into them. The Nixon administration, said Washington col columnist Joseph Kraft, was the first criminal presidency in our country. Later, congressional investigations revealed, however, that previous presidential administrations had also been guilty of violating the law, although not to the extent it was done in the Nixon years. At first, only the truth about the Nixon administration emerged. The president was compelled to resign to escape disgrace and prosecution, nothing like this had ever happened before in American history. The American people had barely recovered from the shock when they were stunned by new disclosures in 1975. The government's two glorified intelligence agencies, the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Central Intelligence Agency, were revealed to have been breaking the law and violating the rights of American citizens for many years, throughout no less than six presidencies. The FBI has authority to investigate violations of federal law, including interstate crime, kidnapping, espionage, sabotage, treason, and threats to internal security. The CIA is authorized to gather uh, analyze and provide the National Security Council with foreign intelligence affecting our national security. Both agencies, however, were shown to have secretly exceeded their legal authority, often for political rather than the national security reasons they alleged. Among their illegal acts had been wiretapping, burglary, bugging, opening mail, forging and concealing evidence, keeping dissenters under surveillance and checking on what they read, plotting the assassination of foreign leaders and plotting to overthrow other governments.
the trust of many Americans in their government was shaken. A 1975 poll by Cambridge Survey Research indicated that 68% of the American people were convinced that their leaders had been lying to them consistently. Indeed, observed Senator Philip A. Hart, according to a recent national poll, over 60% of America's young people believe that the country is democratic in name only and run by special interests. What is a democracy? Derived from a Greek word meaning rule by the people, it characterized the early form of Greek government under which citizens governed themselves through elected representatives who made the nation's laws. Periodic free elections allow for political change, with a choice of parties and candidates. Individuals are secure in their personal liberties and in their right to disagree openly with the government. Courts are free to decide all cases purely on their merits. Democracy is perhaps the most fragile of all political systems, precisely because it is more open, more vulnerable to criticism, more subject to disunity. The democratic free society is a government of laws, not men. Its powers are divided, which often makes it less capable of swift and decisive action than a dictatorship. A, dem a democratic government is also limited in its, in its exercise of power by laws protecting the rights of individuals, minorities, dissidents, and local governing bodies. These laws are defined as civil liberties and guaranteed by a constitution, or spelled out in the nation's legal code. What the Nixon administration, the FBI, and the CIA did was in violation of the guarantees of our Constitution and its Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments. These guarantees protect Americans against having their democracy transformed into a police state. <clears throat> the Bill of Rights guarantees your right to worship as you please, or not at all. It prevents the government from giving recognition to or forcing you to pay taxes to support any one religion. It protects your right to say whatever you want to whomever you want. It allows you to write and publish whatever you want, however unfavorable to the government. It gives you the right to read and listen to uncensored news, to find out what's happening in the country and in the world. No mere administrative ruling that it is not in the best interest of the United States, observes historian Henry Still Commager, can silence freedom of speech or press. The Bill of Rights entitles you to meet with any friends you care to, when and where you like. You may also gather with other citizens to protest government actions peacefully or to demand changes in the law. You're protected against unreasonable searches and seizures so that neither you nor your home nor your school locker can be searched or anything taken from you without an official court warrant issued by a magistrate convinced by evidence that you may have violated the law. If you're charged with a crime, you can't be required to give evidence against yourself, your protection against being tortured into signing a confession. You can't be jailed, executed, or have your property confiscated except through judicial proceedings in a court of law. You can't be held in jail indefinitely, but have the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury. You must be informed of the charges against you. 
Your accuser cannot remain secret, but must speak out in court where your lawyer can cross-examine him. You have the right to choose a lawyer to defend you and to call witnesses on your behalf. If a verdict goes against you, you theoretically have the right to appeal it to a higher court, all the way up to the Supreme Court. While awaiting the verdict of a lower or appeals court, you cannot be kept in jail by a judge's demand for excessive bail, the amount of money you must deposit with the court, to assure that you will show up on the day of trial or sentence. If you're found guilty, a judge cannot find you a sum out of proportion to the seriousness of the offense, like imposing a $10,000 fine for a parking violation if he doesn't like the way you wear your hat. Nor can he impose any cruel and unusual sentence, like ordering you whipped or tortured. You cannot be tried in a place distant from the scene of the alleged law violation, but only in the state where it was committed. You cannot be brought to trial for any act you did before a law was passed making it illegal. Nor can the government pass laws barring any group you belong to from any of the full rights of citizenship. The Constitution guarantees you those rights regardless of race, sex, religion, nationality, or political beliefs. If you were born in the United States or became a citizen through naturalization, you are also entitled to the right to vote without cost in all government elections unless you're a convicted felon. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights are the law of the land. Laws passed by Congress or by individual states cannot violate their provisions, although the Constitution can be amended. The Supreme Court has the last word on whether laws, government actions, or court decisions are constitutional. Any that are found to violate the Constitution or the Bill of Rights are declared unlawful and voided. These safeguards of your liberties and rights, along with the process of free elections, are the essence of what democracy is all about. Not that the safeguards always work. Unscrupulous or ignorant government officials may violate the laws, persecuting Americans who oppose them, as the Nixon administration demonstrated perhaps more vividly than previous administrations. But if they are caught at it, as the Nixon administration was, they face a penalty of criminal prosecution or damage suits. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights make it difficult for government officials to disregard the laws concerning the rights of the people, but our government is far from perfect. We need to be ever watchful for abuses and miscarriages of justice. As John Philpot Coran, an Irish statesman, said in 1790, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. When we are vigilant, when we know our constitutional rights and insist upon them, we have the force of the Constitution and the Supreme Court behind us, a power greater than that of any individual, even a president or a government official. A police state is the opposite of a democracy. It is a state in which a dictatorship imposed by a single ruler, party, or group exercises total, rigid, and repressive controls over the social, economic, and political life of its citizens, usually by means of terror through a secret police force. It is the nature of a dictatorial ruler to reach for absolute power, if this is obtainable. 
and even the mildest of dictators relies upon a secret police force and the use of terror tactics to paralyze any political opposition a citizen's rights in a police state are in most cases only whatever the dictatorship says they are if there is a constitution it is usually a mere piece of paper which exists for propaganda purposes it does not regulate the law nor in any way curb any actions the government wishes to take <clears throat> similarly a modern police state may often call itself a democracy without actually being one the test of such a government is whether its power is absolute unchecked by a freely elected legislature and an independent high court if you lived in a police state you would have nothing to say about the people who had power over you since you would not have the right to vote in a free election you would be kept ignorant of what was going on except for whatever the police state wanted you to know or believe the press radio tv movies and every other source of information would be under the control of government censors you would not be able to voice your opinion freely associate with whomever you wished to or go where where you pleased because of an army of secret police spying on the public their job would be to suppress dissent and criticism as treasonous because it would endanger the security of the state by stirring revolt it would be unsafe for you to be seen in the company of anyone who had fallen under the suspicion of the political police you would be subject to arrest at any time without a court warrant even on false or inaccurate charges made by a spiteful neighbor you could be held in jail or in a concentration camp without trial for as long as the authorities deemed advisable if you were given a trial it might be a mock proceeding with the outcome decided in advance you might not even be told why you were in prison nor allowed to notify anyone you might not be given any idea of when if ever you would be released conditions in jail might be so horrible that in desperation you would sign any confession in the hope of a more lenient treatment or you might be tortured for information you were suspected of having about opponents of the government even if these were members of your own family amnesty international a world organization dedicated to helping political prisoners reported in over thirty countries torture is systematically applied to extract confessions illicit information penalize dissent and deter opposition to repressive governmental policy in a democracy you have freedom of movement the liberty to change where you live and work to travel abroad and to move to another country if you prefer but a police state severely restricts your right of movement you would generally need permission to change your place of re residence and job most police states would not allow you to travel beyond their own borders or the borders of neighboring satellites nor to move abroad they prefer their citizens to remain unaware of the freedoms enjoyed in the democracies thus the police state seeks as far as possible to remain a closed society foreign visitors are usually carefully limited as to where they can go and what they can see sensitive about world opinion the police state does not want the repressive nature of its rule reported abroad in short the police state denies its citizens both political rights and those freedoms known as civil liberties which we take for granted like the american air we breathe we would not do so for long if the united states were to turn into a police state
Throughout history, authoritarian states have been far more common than democracies. Up to the mid-19th century, most kingdoms operated on police-state principles with little regard for the rights of citizens. I am the state, Napoleon once said. Government was run primarily for the benefit of the privileged classes who wielded the power. It was not until revolutionary movements began sweeping around the world in 1848 that monarchs felt pressured to appease angry citizens by promising them constitutions and parliaments to protect their rights. Even then, it was not until the 20th century that those promises began to be kept. Many of Europe's despotic kingdoms became constitutional monarchies or republics. In some cases, however, they were replaced instead by police states. During the past 60 years, two principal kinds of police state have developed. On the political left are the communist states based on the ideas of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, two 19th century intellectuals who believed that private ownership of property and business was basically corrupt because it led to the domination of the rich over the poor. Capitalism was doomed to crumble, they insisted, and would be replaced by a dictatorship of the proletariat, that is, the working classes. The communists have advocated taking all industry and agriculture out of private hands to be operated instead as government enterprise, returning to workers and farmers the fruits of their own labor. The first communist state to appear was the Soviet Union, founded in Russia in 1917 by the Bolshevik Party, led by Nikolai Lenin. It was followed 32 years later by the communist state in China, founded by Mao Zedong. On the political right are the fascist states influenced by the ideas of Vilfredo Pareto, who rejected Marxist theory. Pareto argued that intellectuals were responsible for the mess the world was in, which could only be remedied by men of action through force and violence. Successful lead leadership, Pareto taught, consisted of the ability of bold leaders to seize opportunities at the right time. The fascists have advocated achieving national strength by unifying a country under a powerful dictator, by exterminating inferior ethnic groups to breed only a master race, and by waging war to win territory, treasure, and glory. The first fascist state was the Italian dictatorship of Benito Mussolini in 1922. It was followed 11 years later by the Nazi police state led by Adolf Hitler in Germany. These fascist states were run with the support of conservative, wealthy, and powerful classes. Both communists and fascists deny political freedom to the people they rule. Some political scholars, however, see a basic difference between the two systems. The plain fact, said an editorial in the liberal nation, one of America's oldest weeklies, is that the USSR and China, and Cuba for that matter, are social revolutionary regimes. Good or bad, they are that. All arose from intolerable social conditions, and all tried to correct those conditions. Men like Marx, Lenin, Mao Zedong, Stalin even, are not to be compared with Hitler and Mussolini, who never had a social philosophy, 
but were bent simply on rapine and conquest. Not all scholars are willing to accept this distinction, but I find the perception both valid and significant. Thus, I discuss the various dictatorships in this book not only in terms of the classic attributes of a police state, political bondage, denial of civil liberties, use of surveillance and violence, but in economic and social terms as well. A recent survey indicated that 66 of the world's countries today and 42% of the world's population cannot be termed free. In late 1975, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, then the American ambassador to the UN, observed that the dwindling number of democracies represented at the UN were coming under increasing attacks from total totalitarian and communist regimes and assorted ancient and modern despotisms. The dictatorships in Latin America, Africa, and Asia, noted Robert M. Hutchins when he was director of the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions, leave the Western world with an almost complete monopoly of self-government. Only Europe and North America make serious claims to democracy as we understand it. In a world which, year, which each year sees more police states and fewer democracies, the possibility that our own country too might abandon democracy under the pressure of increasingly difficult economic problems cannot be ignored, especially since many Americans today, perhaps because of a growing alienation from politics, are not as informed as they might be about different forms of government and economic systems. Tomorrow's generation of voters will soon have the preservation of our democracy in their own hands. If they are unable to distinguish clearly between the characteristics of a democracy and those of a police state, they might be misled into supporting movements, candidates, or legislation that could pave the way for an American dictatorship. The conditions that breed police states are not unique to foreign countries. They are latent in any country, including our own. In recent years, most Americans have come to realize that it is risky to trust one's government always to do the right thing and to protest the liberties of the people. Liberty has never come from the government, warned Woodrow Wilson. Liberty has always come from the subjects of it. The history of liberty is a history of resistance. In the pages that follow, we shall examine the conditions that brought about several police states, how power was seized by a dictatorship, and what it is like to live under police states of both the right and left. We need to recognize that police states may appeal to many people who are willing to forgo political freedom and civil liberties, especially if they've never enjoyed them for what they believe are the more practical advantages of having adequate food, shelter, and medical care. To explain why, this book indicates some economic accomplishments of police states as seen by their own people, as well as their obvious shortcomings from a democratic point of view. Especially in times of national crisis, it is vital that more millions of American voters learn to recognize the danger signals that... that warn us our way of life may be in peril. Their prompt political action could be the decisive factor in preventing the White House from becoming the tomb of democracy.
Chapter 2. Hitler's Germany In the wake of Germany's defeat in World War I, revolution erupted in many parts of the country. The German Empire came to an abrupt end in November 1918, when Kaiser Wilhelm fled to Holland for refuge. A struggle for power broke out between the Communist Party, which wanted to establish a communist Germany, and the Social Democratic Party, which wanted a gradual, nonviolent abandonment of the German capitalist system. The Social Democrats won out. They were supported by most Germans who were frightened of communism. Together with other non-communist parties, the Social Democrats formed a new democratic government called the Weimar Republic. But German citizens were dismayed when the Weimar Republic admitted German guilt for starting the war by signing the punitive Versailles Treaty that forced Germany to pay reparations for war damages and the cost of Allied occupation troops. The treaty also transferred German territory to France, Belgium, and Poland, stripped Germany of colonies and its merchant fleet, and forbade German rearmament. Adolf Hitler, an Austrian-born war veteran, denounced the traitors of the Weimar Republic. He lumped them bitterly with all enemies of the fatherland he considered guilty of its ruin, including the vengeful allies, the communists, and the Jews, whom he blamed for keeping Germans helpless and poor. He would sweep them all aside, he vowed, and restore Germany to its former glory. Failure had dogged Hitler's early efforts to be somebody. Spurned as an artist, he had spent five humiliating years, 1905 to 1910, in Vienna, shoveling snow, beating carpets, painting houses, and working as a railroad porter. It was the fault of the rich Jews of Vienna, he fumed, who were out to enslave the world. He had greeted the outbreak of World War I in 1914 with relief, enlisting in the German infantry. What an exciting thing war was, to, so filled with dramatic violence. Fighting courageously, he was decorated for bravery and won promotion to corporal. Germany's defeat found him hospitalized by an attack of poison gas. A brooding Hitler grew convinced that Germans needed someone like him to lift them out of their post-war misery. Everyone knew that it was the destiny of Germans to be the master race. All they needed was a strong leader, a Hitler. Turning to politics, he modeled himself on the example of a self-appointed messiah he greatly admired, the strutting, jack-booted Benito Mussolini of Italy. Joining the National Socialist German Workers, Nazi Party, he soon rose to leadership by making fanatical anti-Semitic speeches in Munich beer halls. The Jews were to blame for all of Germany's troubles, Hitler screamed. Germany's defeat had been a plot engineered by international Jewish bankers. Communism was also a Jewish plot. A Nazi regime would keep German blood pure of any Jewish taint, unlike the Weimar Republic, which had become mongrelized. Germans must destroy the Jews, must become masters of the Jew-ridden lower races. He meant the English, French, Poles, and Russians. Anti-Nazis who sought to challenge his wild tirades were quickly clubbed into silence by Hitler's stormtroopers, 
the police arm of the Nazis, who were cheered on by his fascinated listeners. Many Germans, confused and bewildered, hungered for a strong leader to replace the Kaiser. They sought a messiah who seemed to know what was wrong and how to restore Germany once more to its place in the sun. Hitler represented himself as the embodiment of the popular German will, which he considered reflected by the lower middle class. Although he used the terms socialist and workers in the name of his party, they were only bait to lure workers away from the social democrats and communists. Many industrialists approve of his stormtroopers' bloody street attacks on communists and secretly responded to Nazi appeals for funds. By the end of 1920, the Nazis had enlisted 6,000 members and had organized 100,000 sympathizers into a citizen's defense. England protested that this paramilitary force violated the Versailles Treaty ban on German rearmament. The Weimar Republic ordered the citizens' defense dissolved. Hitler was delighted. What a propaganda opportunity he now had to harass the government as anti-patriotic. We will incite the people, and not only incite, we will lash them to a frenzy, he told his fellow Nazis. We will preach struggle against this parliamentary breed, which will not cease until either Germany has been totally ruined, or one day a man with an iron skull appears to show the nation some action. And who else would the man with the iron skull be? Of course, except Adolf Hitler. In 1923, when the German economy collapsed, the Nazis made their move. Runaway inflation sent the price of a pound of meat soaring from four marks to two billion. Shocked Germans found their savings wiped out, their insurance policies and pensions worthless. Suffering grew intense as prices for food, clothing, and rent soared. Factories were forced to shut down, throwing millions out of work. Hitler ranted, that miserable Weimar Republic, what a helpless, hopeless, hapless excuse for a government doing nothing while Germans starved. The Communist Party worked for a general uprising. So did the Nazis. On November 8, 1923, Hitler led over 3,000 stormtroopers in a putsch to take over Munich and the government of the state of Bavaria. Government forces crushed the revolt. Hitler was flung into jail, sentenced to five years. He served only nine months, however, in considerable comfort, thanks to powerful and wealthy, wealthy supporters who pulled strings. His martyrdom by the unpopular Weimar Republic made him a sympathetic figure in the eyes of some Germans, giving him national prominence. He had used his time in prison to write a book of propaganda, Mein Kampf, My Battle, which quickly became the Bible of Nazism. Didn't Darwin's theory of the survival of the fittest, Hitler demanded, prove the Nazi policy of might makes right? Those who want to live, let them fight, he wrote, and those who do not want to fight in this world of eternal struggle do not deserve to live. He advocated German territorial expansion in the East to eventually swallow Russia and create Lebensraum, living space for the German master race. 
The soil exists for the people which possess the force to take it, he declared. And after Eastern Europe and Russia, world conquest, conquest would make Germany lord of the earth. There would be no democratic nonsense when Hitler became dictator of the Third Reich. Jews, communists, and Slavs would be destroyed as lower human types to prevent their marriage to Aryans, blonde Nordic types, and the mongrelization of pure Aryan blood by children of mixed parentage. It was proper to destroy them because all who are not of good race in this world are chaff. Mein Kampf put Germans on notice that Adolf Hitler intended to end democracy in Germany, making himself dictator, conquer Europe and the world, and eliminate millions of people he hated. Those who followed him with enthusiasm and devotion were not kept in the dark as to his intentions, but many supported him simply because he seemed to offer a realistic escape from the miseries they were suffering in post-war Germany. By the time Hitler emerged from prison, the Nazi party and its press had been banned. He was forbidden to speak in public. What a democracy, he sneered. Worse, from his point of view, the Weimar Republic, aided by loans from America, had succeeded in getting inflation under control and the currency stabilized. The economy recovered rapidly. Hitler doggedly set to work building the Nazi party underground with the aid of funds from industrialists. From only 27,000 members in 1925, the Nazis grew to a once more legal party of 178,000 four years later. His brown shirts, special, special troops recruited mainly from the lowest elements of street brawlers, terrorized neighborhoods. Since his putsch had failed, he decided to seek power through parliamentary means, at least at first. This meant winning elections to install as many Nazis as possible within the German parliament, the Reichstag. The, the elections of 1925 came as a shock to Hitler. Of all the parties in the race, the Nazis came in a miserable seventh with only 285,000 votes less than a sixth of the votes pulled by the Communist Party. Conditions had improved so much under the Weimar Republic that now only one German in 94 wanted to see Adolf Hitler in power. Hitler intensified his propaganda with funds supplied by a number of barons of industry. But the Nazis continued to do poorly at the polls until the World Depression occurred, triggered by the American stock market crash of 1929. German factories were forced to shut down, leaving six million people jobless. Discontent flared anew. Many angry Germans joined the ranks of the Nazis. By 1930, with 16% of Germans unemployed, the Nazi party received a staggering 6,400,000 votes. It won 107 out of 608 seats in the Reichstag, making it the second largest party in the nation. Nazi propaganda, shrewdly churned out by Joseph Goebbels, had convinced more and more Germans that only Hitler could rescue them from disaster. By 1932, the communists had become the third largest party and continued to grow rapidly. 
Nazi stormtroopers known as the SA fought them savagely in bloody street battles. Leaders of the weak Weimar Republic felt helpless to prevent these disorders. The military was fearful that any attempt to suppress parties of either the right or the left, or both, would bring on civil war. The Weimar Constitution, moreover, made no provisions for coping with dissension. Hitler put the Nazi Party's propaganda apparatus into high gear. Such huge, stirring parades, mass meetings lit by searchlights and torches, flaming speeches orchestrated with storms of applause, roars of Heil Hitler, exciting clashes to punish anyone who dared shout opposition. The German people were impressed. Emotions were taken by storm. Hitler appealed to lower-middle-class Germans who were tired of the floundering Weimar Republic and wanted a stronger, authoritarian state. Inflaming their fears of growing communist influence, he portrayed himself as the German scourge of communism. If they would swear fealty to him, he would lead them out of the wilderness. Jobs for the jobless, a future for the idle, restless youth of Germany. A new strong fatherland. No more reparations payments to the Allies. Repudiation of the Versailles Treaty. Destruction of the Jewish money barons and confiscation of their wealth. No more Weimar nonsense about equal rights for women. Restoration of women's natural function as mothers and guardians of the house. Millions of Germans began to believe that Hitler was indeed Germany's Messiah, whose hour had come. Was he not the people's champion? Did he not defy the government that permitted the little Germans to suffer in hopeless misery? Some German army generals saw Hitler as a strong man who could free them from the shackles of Versailles. They agreed to give secret military training to his SA troops. Hitler also held secret meetings with leading industrialists all over Germany. Upon his reassurances that when the Nazis took power, he would jail or destroy all radicals, smash labor unions, prevent strikes, and allow unlimited profits for big business, large contributions flowed into Nazi coffers. Some prominent supporters who grew to know Hitler well, however, became apprehensive about his sanity. He made wild utterances, utter, utterances, vowing a war of revenge against the Allies. He declared he would wage it personally, without generals. If it were lost, he would drag down the whole world in flames. Germany would never again surrender. Then, like an orchestra playing the crashing finale of a Wagnerian opera, he began humming the dramatic score of Gotterdammerung. Hitler's chief obstacle to power was the aging president of Germany, Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg. The highly respected war hero and elder statesman resisted all hints that he name Hitler the next chancellor or prime minister of Germany. He disrupted the fire he distrusted the fiery Nazi leader as a madman bent on plunging the nation into another disastrous war. But the economic depression persisted. Six million Germans were jobless. The middle classes faced ruin. Farmers were unable to meet mortgage payments. 
The government was stricken with paralysis as the Reichstag wrangled over party squabbles. In the elections of March 1932, Hindenburg failed to win a majority of the vote, receiving just over 49%. Hitler netted 30%, and the communist leader 13%. This necessitated a runoff election between the top three candidates in April. Hitler mounted another whirlwind campaign. He even appealed for the vote of single girls by pledging, in the Third Reich, every German girl will find a husband. But Hindenburg increased his vote to 53%, winning another term as president. Hitler's vote increased to almost 37%. The communists dropped to 10%, indicating that almost four times as many Germans preferred the Nazis to the communists. Over a third of Germany wanted Hitler as president. The Weimar government grew alarmed at rumors of an impending military push by Hitler's 400,000 stormtroopers under Captain Ernst Rochum. Rome. <laughs> the, the SA, which had beaten up and murdered opponents of the Nazis and smashed their meetings, was outlawed. Hitler simply ordered the stormtroopers to take off their uniforms. They would continue operating underground until he could force Hindenburg to appoint him chancellor. But Hindenburg contemptuously refused to consider Hitler for any post more important than chief of the post office. The chancellorship went to diplomat, diplomat Franz von Papen, leader of the Small Nationalist Party. Stung, the Nazis continued attacking the Weimar Republic as the Jews' Republic. Seeking to neutralize Nazi opposition, Hindenburg's son made a deal with Hitler. The stormtroopers would be allowed to return to uniform if they removed their campaign of terror against the communists throughout Germany. Hitler promptly agreed. The legal police and army, secretly sympathetic with the Nazis, did not interfere with the new street battles. In an attempt to show their own power, the communists called a general work strike, but most trade unions refused to cooperate and the strike collapsed. On July 31, 1932, the Nazis won 230 seats in the Reichstag, making them the largest party, although not by a majority, followed by the Social Democrats with 133 and the Communists with 89. Hitler's chief aide, Hermann Göring, was elected presiding officer. Hitler pressed his demands to be named chancellor and to have Nazis appointed to positions of authority throughout Germany. Once we have the power, we will never give it up, Joseph Goebbels told his fellow Nazis in private. They will have to carry our dead bodies out of the ministries. Hindenburg continued to resist Hitler's demands. Using a political trick, Göring dissolved the Reichstag once more, forcing still another election. But to the Nazis' dismay, this time they lost, by, they lost 33 seats while the communists added 11. Papen was replaced as chancellor by General Kurt von Schleicher. The Nazis were disheartened by Hitler's failure to win control of Germany by a parliamentary victory. 
Their financial aid was cut off by industrialists who now considered him an unprofitable investment. The party teetered on bankruptcy. There was a party revolt against Hitler's leadership, but he crushed it. The new chancellor, Schleicher, appealed for popular support of the Weimar Republic by ordering increases in wages and relief benefits, price controls on coal and meat, and confiscation of large agricultural estates for division among 25,000 peasant families. Alarmed by what, what seemed to be a new anti-capitalist policy, one powerful group of wealthy Germans secretly sent Papen to Hitler to propose a deal. Would the Nazis agree to join forces with the Nationalist Party in dumping Schleicher's regime and replacing it with a Hitler-Papen coalition? The bribe, Hitler would become chancellor, and the businessmen behind Papen would pay off Nazi debts and refill the party's treasury. Delighted, Hitler promptly agreed. The German army, high command, fearing the growing influence of the communists, also decided to support the Nazis as a lesser risk. Their decision tipped the scales in Hitler's favor. Pressure was put on Hindenburg to name Hitler chancellor. On January 30, 1933, the aging, ailing president reluctantly summoned the Nazi leader. Would Herr Hitler be willing to try to form a new government?